The Advent season reminds us of our longing for restoration, for things to be made right, to be put back together again. When darkness feels overwhelming, we look for the light of the world. John 1 announces to us the arrival of the Savior. Listen as I read John 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let me pray as we come to God through his word. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the blessing that is ours in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that that through Christ, we have the gift of eternal life, a gift given to all who believe. Lord, in this season of longing, of anticipation, Lord, I pray that we would find hope in your word, hope in your gospel, that through Jesus we would see the the rescue that is ours, through Jesus Christ our Savior. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maybe you're not a football fan, but the conclusion to Monday night's game screams for a Hollywood screenplay. Although the winning coach admitted, if you wrote a movie about this, people wouldn't believe it. The reigning league MVP, Lamar Jackson, the Ravens, Baltimore Ravens quarterback, he'd been forced to the locker room with an injury. His backup gives everything he has, but with two minutes left in the game, he's laying on the ground in agonizing pain, needs to be helped off the field. There's not another quarterback available. They're going to make some wide receiver throw the next pass. The season is on the line. This is the biggest play of the year. They're down by a touchdown. Fourth down, two minutes left. And then, running from the locker room, the television cameras capture it. Lamar Jackson, the hero, is coming. He grabs his helmet, he jogs onto the field. The the opposing team's quarterback, he also makes these Hollywood illusions. After the game, he said, "It, it was honestly like a scene from a movie. The commentators describing the game are shocked. And Lamar Jackson makes the play. Fourth down, he completes a pass for a 44-yard touchdown and leads his team to victory. Now, maybe you you don't care about football. Or if you care about football, you didn't care about the the Browns or the, the Ravens. It's just a game. But there's a reason that movies ramp up the music at that moment. There's a reason that the broadcasters begin to shout in excitement because we know what it feels like to be at the end of ourselves. We understand the pain of loss. We long for a hero to step onto the field. The newspaper articles the next day, they said that in the locker room, watching the game coming toward its end, while injured, Lamar Jackson's only thought was to rescue his teammates. And perhaps 2020 highlights the pain and longing of Advent. 
We know that the world right now is not the way it's supposed to be. We see brokenness all around us, and we need a rescuer. See, this is the moment of desperation, but you can hear it. The orchestra begins to swell because the the darkness, while it threatens to overwhelm, will not conquer us. Because listen, listen to, to the declaration that John makes. In this moment when all hope seems lost, John declares, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the moment of glorious arrival. The hero steps onto the field. The savior has come. Truth is announced to us. Grace is offered. Because the language here of Jesus coming, taking on human flesh, becoming man, and then dwelling among us, reminds us here of the reality of the incarnation. God has become a man, a baby born in Bethlehem. The hope of the world here in this moment, on our soil, in our lives. Jesus, the Son of God, reflecting the glory of God. And yet, even as our hymns, our songs have prepared us, he came not to, not to be treated as royalty. He came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life. This baby was born to die, to die as a substitute. The word became flesh, a human being, to die in our place as a true man, to bear our sins. And yet as the son of God, he is, he was with God in the beginning. He is God still now powerful enough to conquer sin and death. And the language here is, is language that, that, would, that would make the listeners think back to God's arrivals in the Old Testament. Look again at verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that, that word there, dwelt, made, a, made his dwelling among us. It, it's the, the language of tabernacle, that, that Jesus tented himself among us. He tabernacled with us. That's the language of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when the, when the people are rescued by God, but, but now they're, they're in the, the wilderness. And yet God builds a, has them build a tabernacle, a, a temporary and portable temple so that he can come and dwell with them. This is language that showing God is present with his people, but not merely in the, 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 the image of, of glory, of, of cloud and fire, but now in the flesh, God incarnate. God here with us. God has tabernacled among us. A, a news story from a few years ago, it showed an innovative, an innovative way to care for the homeless. Uh, material tents, fabric tents, nylon tents, were forbidden on the streets of Brussels. So the homeless were left without any place to sleep. So one, one creative engineer came up with a, with a solution. It's an origami-style cardboard tent. I mean, picture this giant triangle made with, with real thick cardboard that, that sort of un, unfurls like an accordion, big enough to sleep two people. And if you can keep it dry, it'll, it'll last for a month. It can then contain the warmth of, the, of the, the people inside. But it's light enough and portable enough to just be kind of thrown on a back or, or, or carried around from, from place to place. Now... 
My point isn't about the solution to global homelessness, but, but to let you think of that picture, a, a temporary shelter, a fragile shelter, a cardboard tent, one that unfolds. Because when, when the scriptures say that Jesus tabernacled among us, that's a story of humility. Jesus coming down from the confines of heaven, taking on human flesh. A helpless child. So you and I aren't living here in, in the glory of, of mansions. You and I are, are living in the frailty of, of human existence. We are finite people. But more than that, you and I are broken by our sin. We are vulnerable to death. And now Jesus lives among us as one without sin, perfect, and yet fragile. He has tabernacled with us. He's unfolded his tent to be in our midst. Now John explains that that no one has ever seen God. You can't see God, but, but look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Old Testament, and again, the, the language here, and, and, and just in case we missed it, in verse 17, he explicitly names Moses so that we make the Old Testament connection. If we, if we miss this tabernacle language, if we miss this idea of, of longing to see God, he then explicitly names Moses because Moses, at the, the time when, when he had rescued God's people from slavery, Moses asked to see God. If you, if you, you keep your finger there in, in, in the Gospel of John, but, but if you want to flip to, to, to Exodus, in the book of Exodus, we have uh, the, the, the sin of God's people. In Exodus 32, while Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, he's getting the law of God for the people, the people take all of their, their, their jewelry, they throw it in a fire, and then they worship a golden calf. God is ready to punish them for their sin, but Moses pleads pleads on, the, on behalf of the, the people. And when God shows forth his mercy, when God declares himself to be the, the one who shows mercy, the one who is gracious, then Moses makes an, then a bold request. This is Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now again, that's the same language that John is picking up on in John chapter 1. The language of of God being here with his people in the the tabernacle, tenting among them. The language of glory being shown forth. And and Moses says, God, please show me your glory. But God's response says, I will make, this is Exodus 33, 19, "I, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But God said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. And then I will take my hand away. And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, Moses, a sinner... And yet, the righteous mediator for his people, pleading for God's mercy. But Moses, a sinner, wants to see God in his glory, and God says, no. To see God in the fullness of his glory would destroy you, because God is great and perfect, and you are a sinner. And you can think of the the times in the Bible when when people get a glimpse 
of the greatness of God. When Isaiah sees the train of God's robe, he just sees the hem of God's garment going into the temple of God, and he, and he cries out for mercy. And, and Moses wants to see God's glory, but God says, no, uh, he, he's going to be merciful. And so he, so he covers Moses with his hand and doesn't remove his hand and, until Moses can just see the afterglow of God's glory as God disappears from his view. This longing to see God's glory. And then, then what does John tell us? No one, not even Moses, has seen the glory of God until now. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of God himself here in our midst. The one who was at the Father's side from all eternity is now here to make the glory of God known. See, the only way that you and I can see God's glory is if God humbles himself and comes down to us. But more than that, we need Jesus to, to actually step into, not, not just into our midst, but to actually take our place on the cross, to give his life for us so that our sins can be forgiven because the only way you can enter God's glory is as someone who has been forgiven. God has dwelled with us now in Jesus the Savior. Grace and glory revealed to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're, we're told here in this passage that Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. You see that phrase repeated not only at the end of verse 14, that the glory of Jesus, the one who comes from the Father, he is full of grace and truth, but it's repeated then in verse 17. When that contrast between Moses and Jesus, Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, the mediator for God's people, He's the one who came, but, but what did he give? He gave law. He gave a, a pathway to bring sacrifices, to be temporarily reconciled to God. But what does Jesus do? Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. You heard it in God's conversation with, with Moses back in Exodus 33. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. It, it's, it's not based on how good you are or how great you think you are. See, see Christmas humbles every one of us. There, there, isn't, there, is, there is not one of us who can say, but, but I deserve the grace of Christmas. This message is for me because I'd kept myself in line. I'd, I'd kept things in order. No, the, the gospel forces each one of us to admit our brokenness. That what we receive is grace. A gift from God, not one that we earned, but a gift. God chooses to be gracious to us, but, but Jesus brings us not only grace, what is the phrase in both, both verses 14 and 17? It is grace and truth. Now, we live in a, in a culture that, that thinks that, that truth doesn't actually have to match with reality. That you can just make your truth whatever you want your truth to be, and I can have my truth, and we can all just kind of go, go along. But, but it's not actually more gracious to let, just let people believe whatever they want to believe. If, if somebody believes something wrong that will lead to their harm, then to let them keep believing it, it's not gracious. It's not kindness. It's actually horrific. It's like the captain of a sinking ship telling everyone, oh, don't worry, we'll be fine. 
Instead of saying, your life jackets are under your seat, get them on and let's get everyone into lifeboats. To leave people, in, in, whether, whether deluded by their own brokenness or, or their, their sinful ignorance, to, to leave people in believing something that is false is not a kindness at all. See, Jesus comes bringing grace, but it's grace that comes to us as the truth. It matches reality. You are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Your only hope is through Jesus. But Jesus is here. The word became flesh. Yes, it's a, it's a bold claim that the Gospel of John makes. It's a bold claim at the core of Christianity that our salvation is found in Jesus alone. But here, real grace can only be found in the truth, the truth of who you are and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Now, once again, in this passage, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago, we were introduced to John. In verse 15, John the Baptist is what the other Gospels will call him. It's, it feels, again, like an intrusion. Actually, my translators in the version that I read to you, they, they put it in parentheses to sort of set it off of, of we were talking about the word being revealed, and, and then verse 16, you kind of can skip verse 15, and it would read smoothly. If you read, if you skipped verse 15, if you started in verse 14, that, that Jesus has shown the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It, it would flow smoothly so that the translators here have, have put John's witness in parentheses. But again, let's, let's, let's be reminded that it's, that it's not accidental that John, the gospel writer, introduces John the Baptist again in the narrative. Because the truth that you and I need is a truth that comes to us in our history. God sent John the Baptist to announce this truth. And John then is brought forth as a witness. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about Jesus, about the word who became flesh. And, and he then actually quotes from later in this chapter, which we'll see this in, in a, uh, we'll actually look at this on, on Christmas Eve. That this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, people exalted John as this great prophet, and he is. The, the pinnacle of, of God's revelation before the arrival of Christ. And John says, the one who comes after me, he looks younger than I do. I mean, he, he's, he's just a kid after all. But he's the incarnate word of God. From the very beginning, he is God. And so John announces the truth. And, and, and what John the gospel writer wants to do for us is let us see the testimony of men who have walked with Jesus. John the Baptist announced this truth. John, the writer of this gospel, says that that's part of why he wrote this message as well. That this truth is given to us so that we would believe. And yet, what witness do you need? I mean, if you don't believe this message, what are you waiting to hear? What would it take for you to believe? Would God need to raise up a prophet to announce the truth to the world? Would God himself need to step into history to reveal himself to you? I mean, what would it take? See, the humble position is to come to the word of God and ask God to make himself known because grace and truth are here. And it's not a, a limited grace it's not a, there's not a, a, a small supply that once we cut up all the pieces and, and give out, then, then well, you know, if, if there are more people, then we've got to cut the pie into smaller pieces. No. 
This is grace that is overflowing. Because look, look at verse 16. From the fullness of God, Jesus who reveals, the, who comes full of grace and truth, who reveals the fullness of who God is, verse 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There is sufficient grace here. Grace always gives way to more grace. Now, we've already looked at the contrast in verse 17 between Moses and Jesus. And actually, the, the phrase grace upon grace is, is difficult for translators because of the little preposition that's between there that's translated in, in what I read to you as upon. It could actually be grace in contrast to grace or grace instead of grace. It, it could actually be setting a, a sharper contrast because that's what verse 17 does. It says, there, through Moses, you received the law. There was grace in what Moses gave to you. Because without God making himself known, how would you have made yourself right? Without God coming and, and building a tabernacle to, to dwell in your presence, how would you have been made right with God? Without God giving you a, a system of sacrifices, how could you have brought the, the, the shed blood to bring forgiveness? And so there is grace in the law of Moses. But there is grace now even greater than that because God is here in his fullness. But, but even if it just means that, that, that there's just, just wave after wave of grace, that no matter how, how deep you wade in, that the, the waves just keep coming, where you think you've exhausted God's grace by your sin and brokenness, there is grace even more. Whether it's, whether it's just this language of, of, of grace being then poured out, just bucket after bucket of grace being dumped upon you, or it really sets the contrast between Moses and Jesus, the, the message is the same. If you have sinned, there is grace today for you. If you confess your sins and acknowledge that Jesus truly is the Word become flesh, the Son of God, then there is grace here for you today. Fresh grace is always available, even on top of the grace you've already received. There is nothing you could do that can't be covered by the grace of Jesus. There is, there is no rebellion in your life that can't be forgiven because the grace of Jesus is sufficient. There is fresh grace available even now. My nephew Joshua talks with my dad, his grandfather, about always giving him fresh hugs. That, that when, he, when he leaves, he says, I've got one more hug for you, but when you come back, I'll have fresh hugs available. The, the unlimited, unbounding love of a, of a grandson for his pa. There's fresh hugs here whenever you need them. John is reminding us that Jesus has come so that we might receive grace upon grace. There is fresh grace for you today. See, if you have sinned, then there is grace available now. You cannot exhaust the love of God. You never run out. It's an endless supply. But grace also means that you can't think of yourself as one who has received God's favor by your own merit, by your own strength. The grace required to save you from your sins required the arrival of the Son of God, the incarnation of God. The Word became flesh. And we have here, now for the first time in John's gospel, the, 
the declaration of who the word is. Look at verse 17. We finally actually read his name. Now, it may not have actually shocked you because you were anticipating it. I mean, you, you knew, even the first readers of John's gospel would have understood that when, when he began, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that they were speaking of Jesus Christ. But it's not here until verse 17 that we actually hear his name. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word, the light, the life now has a name. Jesus. The name that that his mother would, would sing to him as he fell asleep in her arms. Jesus. It's a reminder, it was, I mean, he was named by God. An angel came and said, you're to give this name to this baby. You should call him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. And every time she sang his name, every time she called him for dinner, she was declaring the truth that God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. It's the the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. God saves. God rescues. And Christ isn't his last name. I mean, his, his mom and dad aren't Mr. and Mrs. Christ. It's a royal title. It's a designation. His name is Jesus. He is the the son of Mary, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, the promised rescuer to come from God, to, to put God's kingdom in its place, to call people back into right relationship with God. The anointed king is here. The rescuer has come. The word became flesh and has made his dwelling among us. The Savior arrived. He has tabernacled with us. Queen Elizabeth II, the long-reigning monarch of the United Kingdom, she describes what she calls one of the most memorable nights of my life. Her father was king at the time at the unconditional surrender of Germany in World War II. The news was broadcast that the war was over and that the next day, May 8, 1945, would be a national holiday. VE Day, victory in Europe. The 19-year-old Princess Elizabeth and her sister joined her parents on the balcony. They, they joined the, the king and the queen, along with the prime minister, Winston Churchill, who had led the, the people through war. They, they, they would come as the, the crowds gathered in excitement. And, and, and every hour throughout the day, they would, they would join with, with her parents on the balcony to, to, give, to give rejoicing for the war was over, victory was won. Now, Princess Elizabeth and her sister, they've witnessed the celebration from the king's perspective, from the royal balcony of the palace. But they want to be in the midst of joy. She describes her memories. My sister and I realized we couldn't see what the crowds were enjoying. My mother had put her royal tiara on for the occasion, so we asked my parents if we could go out and see for ourselves. The princess says, I remember we were terrified of being recognized. Now, just the year before, when she was 18, the princess had joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service, a woman's branch of the the army. So she was in military uniform on this day, like many of the thousands gathered in the street. So she pulls her, her, her cap down low on her face so that she won't be recognized. A princess among the people. Royalty in among the crowds. Now, now another officer saw her wearing her hat incorrectly and reprimanded her and told her to fix it. But again, didn't notice who she was. 
in the, the gathering darkness of the celebrations. She, she says that, that as princesses, they sing in jubilation. They watch her, her parents and the prime minister walk out onto the balcony. She says, we even danced a conga through the nearby Ritz Hotel. Royalty celebrating victory with ordinary people. The war is over. Victory has been won. And yet John's announcement is even more shocking than that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. His victory is astounding. He's conquered sin and death. He's entered into your fragile existence to take away your sins. Grace and truth offered to you by God himself. See, the arrival of the king pours out grace upon grace. There's grace sufficient for you today. Let's come to God in hope. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the message of the gospel, the salvation that is announced to us through Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I ask that we would, we would be able to turn from sin, to follow fully Jesus, our rescuer, our king. Lord, I pray that we would, we would have the, the hope to face the, the darkness in our lives, the sorrow and the sadness, because we know that you are the God who is with us. You have dwelt among us, Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those who have, have not acknowledged him to be their king, Lord, I pray that today, in hearing the gospel announced and having heard it sung and read in your, your word, that you would give faith to those who listen to your word, that they would confess their sins and put their hope in Jesus. Lord, we come praying in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ, Jesus our Messiah, Jesus our King. Amen.